the thing that I find powerful about this story is 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 the ordinary folks who who lived it and 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 how they amplified their voices uh, because you know at, at the beginning of this fight they didn't really have one and and there was no roadmap for how to find one and and yet they do find a voice and they do amplify that voice and in the span of roughly two years these folks will go from from being ignored by local officials in, in Niagara Falls um, to having the ear of Jimmy Carter in the White House. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Lois Gibbs knew something wasn't right when her five-year-old son began having seizures. She soon discovered that the local school and playground in Niagara Falls, New York, where she lived, was built on a toxic waste dump known as Love Canal. It was 1977, and Gibbs transformed from a suburban housewife into a crusading activist who changed the face of the national environmental movement and whose work led to the creation of the Federal Superfund program. Love Canal has become synonymous with corporate greed and toxic pollution. Hooker Chemical, the largest employer in Niagara Falls, had for years been dumping highly toxic waste in the working-class community. The company covered the polluted landfill with dirt and sold it to the city's Board of Education for a dollar, and a school was soon built on the site. Hundreds of community members and school children were ultimately poisoned, and some died. Echoes of the Love Canal saga can be felt today in communities including Bennington, Vermont, where local residents just reached a $34 million settlement with St. Gobain, a multinational plastics company responsible for contaminating the soil and water. The Love Canal story is told in a new book, Paradise Falls, The True Story of an Environmental Catastrophe, by New York Times bestselling author Keith O'Brien, who is a former reporter for the Boston Globe. I spoke to O'Brien while he was visiting Niagara Falls to speak about his new book. Keith O'Brien, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. The Love Canal story broke into the news nearly a half century ago. Why did you decide to revisit it now? Well, really for two reasons. One, you know, I feel like the, the 70s are a very ripe historical period right now. Uh, unfortunately, for those of us who were alive then, it, it is now history. It's 40 or 50 years ago. Um, and so I think it is, it is um, you know, ripe for review. Um, but the reason why I was specifically drawn to the, to the story of Love Canal is is that I, 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 as I dug in uh, into it, I realized that it, it's really just far more than just this disaster that you maybe sort of remember from long ago. Uh, I think it is a very relevant story for today um, because the mistakes that were made that led to the problems in Niagara Falls and led to this disaster that we know as Love Canal 
were not one mistake. It was many. It was a litany of mistakes made over time. And equally, it, it was not, you know, one protest or one march or one angry phone call that led to the changes there. It was a two-year fight. It was a dogged fight um, for people to, to get the attention they needed. And, and so I really did begin to see this as a, as a story of, of resistance in, in the face of, of really impossible odds. And that, I think, is a very relevant story for today. What put it onto your radar? So, you know, I uh, was born in the 70s. Uh, you know, I was quite young then. I have little snippets of memories from that decade. Uh, I remember the blizzard of 1977. I, I remember the gas lines. Uh, I remember the uh, Iran hostage crisis. And I do remember this place called Love Canal. Uh, but at the time, and really for many decades to follow, I didn't really know what that was. And the truth is, I don't think most people do either. This is a term that people of a certain age may remember, uh, but don't really know. And for a vast majority of people, it's something that has completely slipped their memories altogether. And uh, and I ask these questions somewhat rhetorically because I always find that revisiting, you know, historical events, particularly ones that, you know, kind of linger in our minds, kind of only as a headline, but that the details are a lot more interesting than we remember. So let's dive in. Um, you note that the whole story of Love Canal and the activism around it was propelled largely by women who were dismissed as housewives and belittled in many ways. So introduce us to the cast of characters. You know, Lois Gibbs uh, became, for many people of that era, the name, you know, the crusading uh, mother and activist of Love Canal is sort of the only name that, uh, uh, you know, lingers for many people. but. Even that, probably people don't recall who she was, but you expand the lens to include a lot more people. So uh, tell us who the cast is. Sure. Well, you mentioned Lois Gibbs, which is a name uh, some people will recognize. Lois was uh, a mother of two children on 101st Street, just two blocks from this uh, this forgotten chemical landfill, this, this place called Love Canal. And, and, and it is Lois, uh, more than anyone else, who will uh, gain a measure of fame uh, and notoriety from this fight. And, it, and it's a deserved one because more than anyone else, Lois really will push this, push this into the spotlight. And, and, and she, more than anyone else, will garner the attention of, of top officials in this country, including President Jimmy Carter himself. Um, but it is a, a broader cast of characters. And that was you know, something that I recognized early in my research. And so, so my story really focused on this, this, this group of, of, of people, uh, women, uh, who, who, who came together. So there's Lois, uh, there's a scientist from nearby Buffalo uh, by the name of Beverly Pagan, a PhD biologist who comes to the assistance of residents in this neighborhood. Um, there's a congressional aide in Washington by the name of Bonnie Casper, who uh, was really forgotten by history, but uh, as a young congressional aide 
for the congressman from Niagara Falls refused to let this go and really, uh, um, you know, saw early on that this was a problem even before Lois Gibbs did. And, and then there's a woman named Luella Kenny. Uh, Luella, uh, just like Lois Gibbs was also a mother. Luella was a mother of, of three boys uh, uh, on the other side of the neighborhood from Lois. And, and just like Lois, uh, Luella became worried about uh, what these chemicals in the ground, uh, these forgotten and in many ways secret chemicals in the ground uh, were doing to her family. And, and uh, Luella uh, in tandem with Lois will, will really push this into the spotlight. And, and Luella will um, you know, find herself staring down uh, one of the most powerful corporate executives in America. So your book reads like a, thil- a thriller, and you know the the villain in this story is uh, certainly Hooker Chemical and its officials. So r- fill in the backstory here. What actually was Love Canal? It was a physical thing that uh, looms large in this. Exactly, and that's something that you know again most people don't know or or don't remember. So. You know, this story plays out in Niagara Falls, uh, about six miles due east of the waterfalls that most people know. Uh, in the 1890s, uh, an, entrep- an, an entrepreneur and a bit of a grifter by the name of William T. Love uh, shows up in town. And uh, William Love has this plan to build a canal, an 11-mile canal, a cut-through, really, uh, that will start... Um, upriver of the waterfalls and end downriver of the waterfalls. And it will generate hydroelectric power. And at the terminus of this canal, William Love plans to build a great city, a model city, he says. Uh, And, you know, it's the 1890s and uh, William T. Love does not make it far. Uh, uh, He makes it about a half mile or a mile in and, and abandons this project. And for the next four or five decades, this, this channel, this, this canal to nowhere is sitting there. And um, uh, in the 1940s, uh, one of the largest employers in the city of Niagara Falls acquires it. Uh, the company is called Hooker Chemical, and they begin using it as a dump, as a dump for their chemical wastes and residues. And, and they, they dump these wastes there for about a decade, uh, 21,000 tons, roughly. Uh, and, and, and then in 1953, uh, Hooker uh, gives this land to the city of Niagara Falls, to the Board of Education, for a dollar. Uh, the, the, the city has actually asked for the land. They reached out to Hooker Chemical uh, because the population was pushing east and they needed land for a new school. And, you know, it's clear from my research that Hooker had some misgivings about this. You know, they, as they said in one of their internal documents, this, this land isn't suitable for that purpose. Um, but, they, but they do begin to come around on it. Uh, you know, and, and the school board be, you know, continues to pressure them for the land. And, and so uh, they give this land to the city for a dollar in 1953. And in, in the passing of this land, the transferring of this land, the company asks for a, a, 
uh, a caveat, which would be that, you know, uh, they would be uh, released from all future liability um, from anything that might come of this land. And, you know, the land does get used uh, for a school and a playground and, and roads get built across it. And even in the construction of these roads and other things, problems start to emerge. Uh, these chemicals uh, start to make themselves apparent, uh, but it's not for about 22 years uh, that the problems be begin to present themselves in a way uh, that uh, starts to affect uh, lots of people, but starts to affect lots of residents. And that's when it becomes obvious what is in the ground. How much did Hooker know about the level of toxicity? And was the school board, when it made this purchase, aware, made aware of why Hooker was initially reluctant to give them this land? More than any other entity, Hooker was deeply aware of what was in the ground. Uh, to be plainly clear, uh, most people uh, do not understand the science of the chemicals that were buried there. You would have to be, uh, you know, uh, a chemist, uh, uh, a chemical manufacturer, uh, 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 a scientist to understand uh, these chemicals. And, and to be uh, secondarily clear, no one at the time really knew what would happen if you piled these chemicals one on top of the other, uh, you know, right in the same place. So Hooker was aware of what was in the ground. Um, that's clear from their internal documents at the time. Uh, but Hooker also does make the school uh, the school district aware. Um, you know, they they tell them uh, that that they've been using this land for these purposes, uh, and 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 you know, but they also tell them over the course of that spring um, that they're studying the land, and and they they believe that uh, with uh, with some proper landfill and some pop uh, uh, proper um, review that it could be used uh, for something. Um, you know, it, it, so, so they make the school district aware, uh, but the school district and no one could really know the full extent of what was in the ground. Um, but I think to me, what's so shocking about this is, is that for the next two decades, people in power in Niagara Falls, not just Hooker, uh, but the city, uh, the school board, even down to you know small administrators like the school principal, knew what they were dealing with there. They knew what that land was sitting on. Multiple important and powerful parties knew, and and the people who didn't know uh, were the ones who were going to be affected most, and that was the residents of the neighborhood. So these local women, Lois Gibbs, Luella Kenny, begin to mobilize. Uh, what was the key? What made them able to break through this corporate cover-up as well as, uh, you know, a government indifference or complicity in that cover-up? Um, what was the key to their, uh, call it success, of course, in the face of disaster? Well, 
it was it was multiple things and again multiple things over the course of two or three years chipping away at this uh it, it really begins in june 1977 in the wake of the snow melt from the blizzard of 77 uh, things in the ground uh, on the east side of town start to seep out in ways that residents hadn't seen before. And uh, small-time bureaucrats at the city of Niagara Falls are concerned. They're concerned uh, by what they describe as, at times, buried drums, uh, buried chemical drums, 55-gallon drums uh, you know, emerging uh, uh, in this neighborhood. And, and uh, one of them, in June 1977, makes a phone call to his congressman, uh, John LaFalse in Washington. John LaFalse was at the time a, a very um, young and, and green congressman. He'd only been in Washington for a couple of years. Uh, he would go on to serve uh, the district for, for uh, three decades. Um, and, and when they call, they get Bonnie Casper on the phone, who is uh, one of John LaFalse's congressional aides. And they wanna set up a meeting. Uh, and they come to Washington and over lunch, uh, this small time bureaucrat and a consultant describe to Bonnie what they've seen with their own eyes. And, and they say they need money. They need like $400,000, they say, in order to study the, the extent of the issue. Uh, because even after these drums began to surface within this neighborhood, um, the answers were not forthcoming. And, and, and no one still in the summer of 77 is announcing to residents, we have a major problem here. Uh, they wanna study it, they need to know what's in the ground. Uh, and it's Bonnie who begins to sort of push that rock up the hill. And you know, by that fall, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a young reporter for the Niagara Gazette, uh, the local paper begins to take up the issue and he begins to write stories about this problem. And he really begins to dig in in a way that other journalists had not. And these stories start to make their way into the newspaper, which lands on Lois Gibbs's uh, porch. And it's Lois who reads these stories and begins to connect the dots, you know, to what she's reading in the paper about these chemicals and what's happening in her own house. Uh, Lois is worried because her son, then just in kindergarten, had recently started suffering from seizures. And, and this is really where it all begins uh, for the residents of the neighborhood. You write that the, the, the way that the women were belittled and dismissed and the fact that they were women was ultimately to their advantage. How did they turn that to be you know, an advantage in this fight? It was Lois Gibbs and Luella Kenny, uh, the, the two mothers in the neighborhood, uh, who, really, who really made this realization first. Um, you know, neither of them uh, were, were activists. Uh, Lois Gibbs had, had, had barely graduated from high school. And, and indeed, in the late 70s, before this all uh, emerged, you know, was the kind of person who felt self-conscious speaking up in front of others, and certainly not the kind of person person to give speeches. That was not who Lois Gibbs was. Um, but they recognize early on, Luella and Lois do, that, that there's a certain power uh, to their story. 
because they weren't scientists. Uh, you know, they weren't, uh, you know, uh, chemical experts, but they were mothers. And when they spoke from the heart uh, about the, the way these chemicals were affecting their lives, affecting their families, people stood up and listened like they hadn't before. Uh, uh, including top politicians in Washington, but also the media. Uh, the media, uh, you know, uh, took an interest in this story almost specifically because it was it was mothers who were angry. Uh, it, it was, as they said at the time, housewives. Talk about the national implications of this case and its aftermath. What did the activists really, who just began as the residents or the mothers of Love Canal, how did they change America? So this fight will really change, change America in two important ways. First, it will fundamentally change U.S. environmental policy forever. Um, many of your listeners will have heard of the term Superfund or the Superfund Act. This is uh, sweeping legislation that was passed in 1980. Uh, and it was, it was born uh, in late 1978 in Washington as EPA administrators began to look at the problems in Niagara Falls at Love Canal and began to look at the problems around the country. These other orphaned uh, dumps and landfills uh, that had been filled with hazardous waste uh, at times, decades before the EPA even came into existence. And so they began to discuss in Washington that they needed uh, authority and, 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 a, and a fund of money, a really large fund. Some began to call it a super fund uh, in order to clean up these sites. And so this legislation is born specifically in the, in the weeks after uh, the problems emerge in Niagara Falls and, and will ultimately pass in late 1980, uh, you know, fundamentally changing how uh, how America grapples with uh, buried waste like was found in Niagara Falls. But, but just as importantly, uh, this fight changes something else. It changes really the environmental movement. Um, you know, uh, up until this point, 1978, 1979, 1980, most people in America perceived the environmental movement as some kind of uh, East Coast or West Coast elite passionate uh, passion project, you know this was this was for the liberals on the coast. It was for to 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 use a denigrating term. It was for for the hippies uh, and the flower children of the '60s. Uh, you know this neighborhood on the east side of Niagara Falls was was really working class people who were scraping their way to the middle class. These were union families, factory workers families. And, and when Lois Gibbs was on TV and, and you know, speaking about what was happening in her neighborhood, other people across the country uh, in suburbia and also in urban neighborhoods, you know, black and white uh, families, ordinary families began to also wonder what was in their yards, what was in their water, what was in their neighborhood. And, and this really does fundamentally change uh, the, the face of the environmental movement. You are in Niagara Falls right now on your book tour. Um, what is Love Canal today? And, and 
how would you kind of assess how Niagara Falls, uh, the community, has you know what this story, how it has changed this the surrounding community? You know, at the time this story uh, took place in the 1970s, this was a desirable neighborhood. It was a neighborhood of about a thousand families, black and white, um, living in, you know, uh, what was considered to be, you know, good houses, good housing. Um, these days, it's sort of like that, and it's completely different. Um, in 19, in the late 1980s, the state of New York conducted a, a massive scientific study, one of the largest uh, it had ever been tackled before by a state entity that studied the, the neighborhood. And in the wake of it, they made a controversial decision. They decided to resettle homes on the western side of the old canal and the northern side of the old canal. So if you go to the neighborhood today and you come into the uh, come in from downtown, uh, you'll see those those old uh, homes still there, just as they looked back in the 1970s. Indeed, Luella Kenny's home is still there. But as you move to the eastern side of the neighborhood, all of those homes are gone. Uh, the state deemed that area uninhabitable uh, and uh, the streets are still there, uh, but the pavement is buckled and cracked. Um, the houses are, are by and large long gone. And this, this rectangular plot of land upon which the school had once stood and the playground had, had once stood is, is still, you know, decades later, fenced off from the world around it and, and monitored, uh, you know, around the clock uh, for releases of its, of its contents in the ground. Was there ever any accountability uh, for Hooker Chemical? Again and again throughout the 1990s, uh, Hooker settled uh, multiple lawsuits uh, to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and, and yet, still today, uh, decades later, uh, there is still pending litigation related to Love Canal. Um, you know, against all, all kinds of different parties. And so uh, this, this litigation in, in many ways is still going on today. What do you hope that people come away from reading your book and from knowing the story of Love Canal a half century after it happened? You know, I, I think the, the thing that I find powerful about this story is 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 the ordinary folks who who lived it and 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 how they amplified their voices uh because you know at, at the beginning of this fight they didn't really have one and and there was no roadmap for how to find one and and yet they do find a voice and they do amplify that voice and in the span of roughly two years these folks will go from, from being ignored by local officials in, in Niagara Falls um, to having the ear of Jimmy Carter in the White House. And that is, you know, um, I think a, a, a very uh, relevant and, and resonant story for the times we live in today. Well, Keith O'Brien, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation.
Thanks so much for having me. It was my pleasure. Keith O'Brien is a journalist and the author of the new book, Paradise Falls, the true story of an environmental catastrophe.